Look up there, Charlotte. Who's starting late? Is it my fault? Oh, well, you, you know, I don't want the beating. 440. Here we go. March 7th, 2010. Lecture discussion number 16 on Zechariah 11. Revelation 13, 17, John 11, 12, and 13, and Matthew 12, 26, and 27. Okay, welcome to Cliffside Community Chapel. For those of you who are on the Internet and other places that I'll never know about, uh, where we are currently battling uh, now is our way through the eighth mystery. If this is your first time, you're catching up here. This is the 16th of a series so far, so the other are also hidden somewhere on the Internet. But the eighth mystery is the mystery of the man of sin. All of us here know that. It's the mystery of the lie. So when I say man of sin, I also need to emphasize that this is Satan's lie. This person that he raises up, that he enters into as well, that he has a very close relationship, is the counterfeit Christ. It's called the lie. It is the mystery of the seed of Satan. It is the mystery of his offspring somehow. It is the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. It's the mystery of the Antichrist, mystery number eight is all of those things wrapped up. And of course, uh, naturally, any discussion that encompasses the eighth mystery must, 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 will, 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 should, should, should. You can't talk about the eighth mystery. You cannot have a comprehensive investigation into the eighth mystery unless the, the focus of your investigation would be your suspect, which is Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot is a deeply enigmatic person. And he says and does many complicated things. In fact, that's all he says and does is many complicated things. Do not have a shallow person or a shallow position on the person of Judas. Do not have a shallow position on the person of Christ. Obviously, don't have one on the person of Christ, but don't also have one on the person of Judas. Do not write Judas off as if he is some just lost soul out there that is floundering around. He is not that at all. He is a purposed, complex, genius, wicked individual. And he does, as I said, many, many evil, complex things. Not the least, actually, probably the most significant is Judas is the one that throws the Zechariah good shepherd wages at the potter temple, the temple potter. Sorry, that's what he does. And that's an act that has confounded Bible scholars throughout history. Ninety nine percent of all commentators fail to understand why Judas is the one throwing the good shepherd's wages to the potter? Why he's throwing? How did he even get it? They're not even understanding for sure when Judas got it. Every time I read a commentary, and I have wonderful guys and women as well, um, uh, they just can't figure out when Judas got the money. And I think it's pretty obvious when he got the money, when he got the wages. But we'll get into that uh, here in a couple of weeks, maybe next week. But I'll tell you that 99% of all scholars fail, all published scholars, fail to understand the throwing of the good shepherd's wages to the potter by Judas and how it is a fulfillment of Zechariah 11. It stuns them, and we will, of course, I think, be able to solve that rather easily, which doesn't mean that we're right. 
Okay, it does mean we're right. And it's frustrating to me. It really is. As you know, I rarely find somebody who's figured it out, even thought it through for that matter. And that's very frustrating. Likewise, let me say this really fast. Good luck on finding any coherent, thought through, logical, connected exposition on Judas hanging himself. That's rare to find. Or why he chose the field of blood to hang himself over, or the also called the potter's field. How that fits into Jeremiah and is a fulfillment of Jeremiah uh, is also a puzzle to many. Five, good luck finding an explanation that's worth anything on Judas's own place. He goes to his own place when he dies. Where is his own place? Why he had the money box and the poor issue. What that, that's all about. Why he kisses Christ at Gethsemane. Because Christ asks him a question. It's kind of almost sarcasm, I think, in the sense that he says, Oh, what an interesting idea, this kiss of yours. It's a kiss of what? What's a kiss in that culture? Honor, friendship, love. What is therefore a repetition of? What's what's its complement? The piece of bread, the first piece of bread out, out of the banquet meal or out of the Passover meal. Good luck again finding the implications of Satan entering Judas. That seems to just bypass everybody. When you put Satan inside of you, not you, but if you put Satan inside of someone, I always say, how smart is that person now? How powerful is that person? How wicked is that? How much evil is that? What is the purpose of this unity? Why would Satan even want to bother with it? It has to have some kind of extraordinary function. And that's just bypassed. Like Satan enters everybody. Satan doesn't enter everybody. Satan does not cause you to sin. Where is Satan? He's in Babylon. What causes you to sin that has anything to do with Satan? His system does. But you're not, he doesn't, he isn't going around going, well, I wonder where Steve is today. I think I better go smack him one. He's busy. I'm not arrogant enough to think that Satan, Lucifer, is hunting me down. And I don't blame him for my sin. Who do I blame for my sin? Me. I'm perfectly capable of being wicked without any influence. But his system sucks us all in. But to say to yourself, and I have one of my favorite pieces of New Testament scripture is where guys are running around pretending they're hot shots and they run into a demon. What's a demon go? I ain't heard of you. I heard of other guys, I ain't afraid of you. That's a great passage. Keep that in mind when you're blaming Satan for things. You can in the sense that his system, that his evil has permeated everything, saturated everything, but he's not on the phone. That's an elevation, by the way. When somebody does that, they're elevating themselves. Oh, Satan called me today trying to tempt me. What are they saying about themselves? Don't fall for that. That's a trick to do what? That's right. Put your money in their money box. Okay. Also, try finding the, the eternal condemnation of Judas in scholarship. That's a powerful, powerful thing. The woe to that man. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's part of today's subject, by the way. That's spoken by Christ. Christ says it would have been good if that man had not been born. He says it to Judas's face. And that's an extraordinary thing. And then, uh, and it's very difficult 
to find that anywhere. You know, you have to think if it's not good for Judas to be born, then what is the birth of Judas? How is the birth of Judas? When is the birth of Judas? The Lord God Almighty calls Judas the devil, the devil, definitive article. Your Bible will say a devil. Get rid of that. That's somebody that does not understand the root word is a definitive article. It means the devil. No one else called the devil but Judas and Satan, John 670. And then he has this rabbi, is it I question, which is unbelievable. Why he would even begin to ask a question like that. And then, as we've covered before, the first piece of bread and the do quickly. Very, very little available scholarship that is analytical, compelling, rational with respect to the person that's Judas. And I would what? Expect that nobody would know anything about Judas. I'd expect that. Why? I would expect Judas to be, one, he's a mystery. Two, I would expect that there would be worldwide, I'd anticipate, worldwide universal blindness to that. How come? Because I got universal worldwide blindness about what? About Christ. The world has no idea. I'm watching, uh, the other day I'm watching a uh, political commentator and, and he, uh, is trying to figure out what Nimrod was. And he said, Nimrod is a, is a, is, means you're an idiot today. But in the Bible it's a good thing. You know there's a basketball team in North Dakota somewhere, I think, calls themselves the Nimrods. And you know what they're doing? See, Nimrod, is a type of Antichrist. He was by far the most evil, wicked man, maybe in the entire Old Testament. He was murdered, actually murdered, assassinated by Esau. If you read the book of Jasser, which is another Jewish historian, not to be confused with the Roman historian Trachy something. Tacitus. Okay. I do like tracheotomy. I do. But Nimrod is not a stupid man. He is a powerful killer. And the Bible identifies him as a killer of men against God. And people read that not knowing that. And they think that he's the founder of the Babylonian uh, uh, religion, essentially. People think that Nimrod was some kind of good hunter. Like, boy, he, he went out on his four-wheeler and got all kinds of moose. No, he was a he was a hunter of men, a killer of men. He was a serial murderer. Not a good thing. People don't even know that. I would expect that, by the way, because of his Antichrist typology. But there's universal blindness to the truth that God or that Christ is God in the flesh, and correspondingly that Judas was the only person of whom it can be said that Satan entered him. Lost is the godhood of Jesus Christ, lost is the wickedness of Judas. I would expect that. Lost is the Christ. Lost is the Antichrist. Now, if you've been attending lately through the Super Bowl, Valentine's Day, for rendezvous with Diderot, and now we're into spring break, why are we going with steaks on Easter? Trying to get a couple more. I'm kidding, really. But if you've been here through all of that, then besides being the highest and most holy, you know that one of the linchpins in the understanding of the mystery of the man of sin 
the wisdom that leads to the 666, because John says in Revelation, it is great wisdom to understand 666. You know that the key, the linchpin, the clue, that it, the clues that are the most important is the Old Testament Antichrist typology. And leading that parade, not in any order, Nimrod, type of the Antichrist, the image of Nebuchadnezzar, and therefore Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar also writes scripture and is saved, by the way. So he's, he's uh, Solomon, some will say, is a type of Antichrist. Um, I'll argue that. But Nebuchadnezzar definitely is. Goliath, wow. Goliath has all kinds of information on the Antichrist. So does Saul, Absalom, Haman, and the Pharaoh. Those are the, the most revelatory. They reveal the mostest about the Antichrist. So when you want to solve the mystery of the 666, you start looking at the Old Testament typology, and then you look at Judas. And if you do that, you'll have the wisdom that John says you can have. Now, before we recontinue, which would be to continue to continue on that subject, which is where we're headed today. I got a little short thing I want to do. I want to introduce some elements that will be prominent at our Passover service. Just as Christmas was is about light coming to darkness, Genesis 1-3. Light coming to darkness is God's way of saying life coming to death. Okay, Christmas is about light coming to darkness or life coming to death. And thus you have the candlelight service, right? We're in darkness and we all get light. That's the same thing as we're in death and we all get life, okay? That's the mystery of the indwelling, the second mystery, Colossians 1-26 and 27. So also, so too, Passover is about death as well. This time, the significance of Jesus Christ's resurrection. And thus, you always have a communion service at Passover. And we will. After the stake or during the stake, we will have the communion service. You see, his resurrection is unique. It's distinct. He is the first fruits of the resurrected, which is appropriate. That's what he's called. That's one of his titles, the first fruits of the resurrected. That makes a lot of sense, given that he resurrects himself on the feast day of first fruits. So then we should be prepared because of the throng of visitor that will come. Somebody tried to laugh. Thank you. Thank you. You're sitting in the front row. We have to be prepared for the visitor that's coming. We have to be able, and we should anyway, talk about the laws of conservation of energy and linear momentum. Here's a good place, by the way. This is, when I talk about these kind of physical things, what I'm really doing is I'm explaining to you how the supernatural world interfaces with the physical world. You know there is a supernatural world. Elijah lets his servant know, flips him into where he can now see the supernatural world and flips him back off, right? Elisha does that. There is a supernatural world. You don't notice it. I don't notice it. But it's nonetheless there. But it does interface. And C.S. Lewis said this wonderfully. He said the, the supernatural or the metaphysical or the spiritual realm is very much like the ocean. 
And we are very much like the land. We stand on the land and we do not see the world that is the ocean world. Now, some people go inside and see some of the ocean world, but by and large, we don't know. I had a professor in Honolulu that said to me, if you had any idea, biologist, if you had any idea what was going on in that water, you would never go in there. If you had any idea what was in there, you would never go in there. I made sure I passed that on to my kids. Consequently, they don't take baths or shower. I don't know if you notice that. But C.S. Lewis said the interface of the spiritual and the physical or the physical and the metaphysical are the, is, the, is uh, like the ocean and the earth. The ocean comes up onto the beach and so you have this interface. That's what resurrection is about. That's what Passover is about. The interface of the supernatural and the natural. And therefore, we have to talk about the laws of conservation of energy and linear momentum. And we have to talk about the relationship between time and the second law of thermodynamics, which becomes the mystery of time, essentially. When you begin to have an understanding of time, you'll find Scripture opens up to you. Because why? Because God created time. The first thing you have to know is that time is within the created order. When God created the universe, that's when he created time. Creation of matter, space, and energy, and time have a relationship. When you have space, matter, energy, and time, you have the second law of thermodynamics, or entropy, and therefore you have time. Now, I keep repeating this created order of space, matter, energy, time. I'm beating it into you so that you're familiar with it. It doesn't freak you out as we go into this. Ultimately, where do we end up in this discussion of space, matter, energy, and time? We end up in what's called space-time. What's that? That is Einstein's theory of relativity. That's what we're doing here. We're probably doing it on Passover, one form or another. I'm going to get you to the place where you understand Einstein's theory of general and special relativity. Anyway, time is very important, very important, because the existence, does time exist? Time does exist. And the existence of time proves very critical things. The evolutionary atheist spends a lot of, uh, they spend a lot of their time trying to escape the implications and the restrictions that time imposes. They don't like time. Time's a problem for atheism. Time is a critical problem for evolutionary atheism. Attempting to cast off the shackles of time is a significant attempt being made by the scientific community, but it's futile. It is a scientific impossibility, but try they must, because their atheism requires that they come up with some kind of explanation of how time began. And when time began? And what is the evidence of time? And if time has a beginning, what's the obvious question? Does it end? What does the Bible say? Your neighbors who come for steak on Passover are going to find out about the cessation of time, as well as the origin of time. There are, you see, such extraordinary 
truths about the beginning of the universe. Notice how I said that there's a beginning to the universe. Remember, we talked about quasi steady state creation, which says that the universe is eternal in both directions, that it never had a beginning, it'll never have an end, and that it is infinite and therefore uh, uh, outside of time. That's what they say. They want that to be true, but they know it's not true. Those who seek to deny the beginning, they're trying really, the beginning of the universe, they're trying to get rid of time, because time is a problem. Now, God is already, by the way, God outside of time. He's the creator of time. He stands outside of the created order. Therefore, he's outside of time. And, and you know this. This is the meaning of his very name, Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. That's what he is saying to you. I am the creator of and I am outside of and I am watching time as if it is on a tabletop. I see it simultaneously. That's why John 8.24, you must believe I am, Christ says, or you will perish in your sins. You not only have to believe that he's God, that he is the I am of Exodus 3.14, but then you have to understand, if you can, as much as you can, that he is the creator of the created order and he is outside of the created order. Time is spread out before Jesus Christ. He sees things as if it's on a table or a map. He is the I am, all things simultaneous to him. Psalm 90, Isaiah 46, Isaiah 57, there is your God outside of time. And by the way, if God is outside of time, if Christ sees everything simultaneously all at the same time, then what does that imply? Hmm. That's the obvious question. If that's true, Psalm 90, Isaiah 46, Isaiah 57, that he sees all things simultaneously, this implies that time, all time, still exists. The concept that all of time still exists, which is Einstein's relativity theory. There you go. Science is finally catching on to the Bible, 1905-1915. It's very important to note that Genesis 1-1 declares a before, specifically the before. There's a before, the creation of space, energy, matter, and time. This is the biblical concept of eternity. Last week I said you've got to know the difference between your nothings. You have, I'm going to say to you, here is the universe from God's perspective. I made it a lot bigger than it is because the universe is finite. God is infinite. The universe can't hold God, but that's the universe. I'm going to call it that. That's for those of you who are not seeing this and you're out there. I made it about the size of a quarter on a board that's four foot by six foot. So what's the obvious question? If that is the universe, and here we are, I'll put us in the universe. You ready? Okay. There, do you see us? Of course you can't see us. That is the universe. That is the created order. Inside the universe is space, matter, energy, and time. It's part of the created order. He is outside the created order in eternity. So what's the obvious question? This is what out here? They'll call this void zero. I stole that from Edgar Andrews, Professor Edgar, Edgar Andrews, who's a brilliant man. I cannot, um, cannot say strong enough to start finding what he's written. 
Who made God? That's what he wrote. Find it. It's wonderful. It's very funny. Very sarcastic. Very bitter. He's obviously an English professor. An Englishman professor. And he has uh, wrote some amazing things. He's also, by the way, a literalist with respect to the Bible. And he's a young earth creationist. Makes him extraordinary. And has, he is undefeated in arguing with atheists, by the way. They don't argue with Edgar Andrews. They run from Edgar Andrews. Very important. You don't know who he is, do you? Every time there's some kind of debate, they just found a snake by the way, did you see that? A snake is inside a nest and it is eating something. Did you see that? They found it in 1987. Anybody notice that? Am I the only one that reads this weird stuff? Yes, it's true. Now, the snake is inside a nest of dinosaurs and it is eating dinosaur embryos that have hatched and that's all fossilized. So what do we now know about the snake? It's contemporary with dinosaurs, don't we? So what kind of snake was it? The snake. Looks like every other snake. Pretty soon, what are they going to find? They're going to find a rat eating dinosaurs. If I'm a rat, I'm going to get in there and eat those dinosaur embryos before what? Before they eat me. That's right. But they actually had an embryo. That, when you look at it, it's very specially done. They were sitting on this for, what, 20-some years. Now, Why? Because they know. They know. Why is their agenda atheism? Anyway, back to my... Outside here is nothing. It's called void zero nothing. Nothing void zero. Okay? At least that's what I'm calling it now. But inside there's also space. And that space is called void one. So you have to know, if you'd like to, you can call it nothing. You have to know the difference, as I said last week, between the nothing that is outside the universe or the pre-existent nothing. Out of that nothing, what did God do? He spoke in matter, time, space, energy. So I have two void, I have two nothings. Know the difference between your nothings. Very important. Now, this next statement may seem confounding, but soon you're just going to burst right through it like it's a paper bag. I'm going to say this as strongly as I can and as clearly as I can. Before the origin of the universe, before the origin of the universe, before the order of the universe, time could not exist. That's because of the second law of thermodynamics. That's why the second law of thermodynamics is so important. Because of its relationship to time. That's because of something called low entropy. Low entropy. Not to be confused with high entropy. They are obviously opposites. Low entropy, high entropy. The low entropy state of something as opposed to the high entropy state of something. And I know you're going, oh my goodness, this guy, can he really, can he really do this on Passover? Oh yeah. It's why stakes. It's why stakes. Anything I can do. Okay. Second law of thermodynamics declares that the randomness 
which is entropy, randomness of an isolated system may increase or remain unchanged with the passage of time. So if I have an isolated system, which means I have no energy or power or effort going into that system, if I have an isolated system, randomness will increase or it will remain unchanged as time goes by. So something, if I take this Coke can and I put it in an isolated system and I leave it there, it will become less ordered. It will become more disordered. It is in a, right now, it's fairly ordered. That means that it is in a low state of entropy, which means it has uh, a low state of randomness or a low state of chaos. I'm probably the best example. Even though I am not an isolated system, I get sunlight, I get food, I'm supposed to get exercise. I have gone from a highly ordered state, see pictures, me at 20, to a highly random state. I had low entropy, now I have high entropy. If I put a, if I put a aircraft engine or an automotive engine out in a field and leave it there and come back in a hundred years, what will its state of order be? It will be much less order and much higher Entropy. Okay? And I, the second law of thermodynamics declares that the randomness, the chaos, the entropy of an isolated system will increase or it will stay the same. In other words, it will disintegrate or degenerate. It will either completely disintegrate or degenerate, or it will stay the same as it is with the passage of time. But it will never go from the state of order that it's in to a higher order. Okay, does that make sense? Randomness can never decrease. Order can remain order or order can degenerate into disorder, but order cannot increase to a higher order within an isolated system. That, by the way, tells you immediately something about evolution, doesn't it? How many, what have they been telling us for years? That mankind is going to do what? Get better. You're going to get better? Look at the cancer rate in golden retrievers. I love golden retrievers. I have a next door neighbor who has a golden retriever. Beautiful. Cleo. When I, we come home, Cleo runs up to you. And what's the first thing Cleo does? She wraps her arms around your leg and puts her head against you and hugs you now. That is a wonderful thing. It's something golden retrievers do. But they die seven years of cancer. They're the highest cancer-stricken dog there is. How come? Because of the inbreeding. Human beings are not, if Adam took a look at us, he'd go, wow, look at all the short, little, dumb, ugly people. That's what he would do. And that's the truth. We have gone, we are nowhere near. We are decreasing. We are becoming more disordered. Okay? Order cannot increase to a higher order within an isolated system. We'll discuss what isolated system is, and eventually I'll explain the universe as the ultimate isolated system. And the universe is becoming less ordered, and it's becoming more random. And why is that? That is because of Genesis 3.14 through 19 and Romans 8.22. that says the universe, the creation, groans because of sin. So low entropy means high order. High entropy means 
chaos, if you will, low order. What's the obvious question now? How fast is entropy occurring? How fast is it occurring? And why is there any order at all if the universe is what? A couple of gigazillion years, billions, billions, whatever. How could we have any order at all? The rate of entropy would be, we'd be in a position now where there wouldn't be any order. Now, here's where I probably confuse those. I lose 99% of you here of the Cliffside Gifted Program. Time could not exist before the creation of the universe because until the universe existed, before the universe, until the universe had a shape and a form, it couldn't have order. And, and it couldn't have low entropy or high entropy. Secondly, how did the universe get into its low entropy, high order state? That's why I asked, why is there any order? First, I had to have low entropy, which means I had to have high complexity and high order. If I have high order, what's the obvious question? How do I get high order? Is high order a naturally occurring event? And what does naturally occurring mean? You see, time requires a highly ordered state. Once it has a highly ordered state, then time can exist. So I have to have a universe, I have to have a form, I have to have a shape. It has to have a highly ordered state, has to have low entropy. And then now I can have time. Time now is created because what does time do? How do I tell time? I tell time by paying attention to entropy, to change, if you will. I want to say it that way. And and time requires change. Highly ordered states require also effort. It takes effort, power to put something into low entropy or high order. I know that's confusing. Time is experienced by the observation of low entropy becoming high entropy or high order becoming low order or order becoming randomness. I can look at something and say, that used to be perfectly aligned and in order and, in, and it used to have all this power and, it, and now it is just a heap. What's going to happen to me physically? I am going to become dust. I went from something that was highly ordered to something that has little or no order at all. And how can you tell it happened? You watch time. It's happening before you. Those of you who have seen pictures of me. Time is experienced in a unidirectional. They call it the arrow of time. Time does this. We know time goes one way. We can go one way. Now, time is experienced. Let me say this again. Unidirectionally. As the universe began, began to change, we saw time, experienced time. Now, if entropy were allowed to continue to its maximum condition, total randomness, total ruin, complete maximum chaos, what would happen to time? Yes, that's right. Very good. Time ceases. Because if nothing can change, if I'm in a place of maximum randomness, then I can't get more random. If I can't get more random, I can't change. If I can't change, time stops. So I have to have a high order to have time. Obvious question, how did I get high order? It takes power to get the high order. 
Who gave the power? That's pretty obvious, huh? So the big question becomes, where from whom did the high order energy come? How do you explain the low entropy starting point that explains the existence of time? And if it's true that the creation is billions and billions and trillions of years old, maximum high entropy would have already occurred and time would have stopped. Okay? Now we're going to keep doing this until everybody gets it. If nothing else you know that there is a relationship between time and the second law of thermodynamics and that time did not exist prior to the creation of the universe, that the universe was created in a high-ordered state, and that takes energy, and we have now watched time over... We've watched the changes over time. Okay, that's where we are today. All things consist in Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and all things are held together by him. He is the energy that is holding the universe together, and he is the one that put the universe in a high-ordered state. Okay? Now, our list. Start the sermon. I have to hurry so Charlotte can get to work. How much time do I need, Charlotte? Obviously, the sermon. I'm on page nine. That's pretty good. Fifteen minutes? And then plus the song, right? Okay, got to hustle. Let's take a quick run at our list. Because this list is amazing. This is Matthew 26, 22 through 25 today. And that list, I think, is uh, either Matthew 26 and John 13. Probably both. Matthew 26, 22 through 25 is the Passover meal where the, where the one who provides the energy that is for the created order to be in low entropy, who holds all things in his hand, that's who is, is sitting at this table. The creator, of, of the, he, the one who is before all things and outside of time, the creator of time, he's sitting there. Okay? And here having a Passover meal, which we're, we're going to have on Ishtar. Easter, for those of you who don't know, it's really Passover. So here we have the Passover meal where omniscient God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, announces the true nature of Judas. Here is where he says there's something different about Judas from the rest of you. And he also has an eternal condemnation of Judas, as you might remember. He said it would be better if Judas weren't born. It would be better if Judas didn't ever exist. As God saying that, the creator of all space, matter, energy, and time. Okay, so pay attention when he talks. But what Christ says is not discerned by each apostle, each apostle, each apostle or disciple, and they began to think it was about them. They did not know that Christ, God, was talking about Judas. Did Judas know? Yes, he knew. He knew. But the rest of the apostles didn't. And one by one, one by one, they all ask, and I don't have it on the board here because I left off them saying it. One by one, each one of them asked Christ, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Notice that. Is it I? 
Okay, but the key is the word Lord. One by one, every one of them, the Bible says in Matthew 26, we don't have time to read it, but every one of them said, Lord, is it I? We have no choice but to read it. I'll have to do that. Sorry. In my view, it went one at a time, 11 times. He says, one of you is going to deliver me to the pharisaical temple guard. One of you is not a believer. One of you is so evil, it would have been better if you had never existed. And one by one, wouldn't you think that would happen? One by one, am I the one? And by the way, if you come to me and you say, I am really worried I'm not saved, am I worried for you? No. I'm not. That's actually proof to me that you are saved. People who aren't saved do not worry about being saved. They never care. People who are saved are constantly worried about it. How come? It's how we get their money. Professional pastors, right? That's how it works. Saving the saved every other Sunday for 50 bucks a piece. It's been going on for centuries. Anyway, each apostle was exceedingly sorrowful. One by one, they asked, Lord, is it I, 11 times. And Christ waits until every one of those 11 have asked. Every one of them asked. And then he answers them one by one, but one guy doesn't ask until Christ does this. So let's read it really fast. Just a couple of verses. We, we know, we know we're looking at the clock every second. Don't worry. He answered and said to them, let me read 22. And they were exceedingly sorrowful and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Am I the one? He answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will deliver me. Yours might say betray. How do you betray the one that is outside of time? He sees all of it at the same time. The Son of God indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then, Judas, then, after everybody else asked, then Christ said it would be better that this guy isn't born, the one that will deliver me to the Pharisees. Then Judas, who was delivering him, answered. Now, isn't that interesting? Did Christ ask a question? He said it would be better. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas answered and said, Rabbi. Now, he doesn't say Lord. He says, Rabbi, teacher, said to him. said, Rabbi, is it I? And Christ said to him, you have said it. Okay? Got all of that? Note that Judas answered Christ. Note the teacher master as opposed to the other Lord. How is it that Judas's response is an answer? That's very important to think that through. Remember, Judas is where in this meal? He's in the seat. He is in the highest place of great honor, the seat place of great honor, love, and friendship. And everyone is asking if they will be the one except Judas. He's not asking. So what's the obvious question? Why isn't he joining in? Is it I? Is it I? Why is he trying to fit in? He's not trying to fit in, is he? Everybody's asking. Not Judas. He waits for Christ to say it's better that you'd never been born. And then he goes, Rabbi, is it I? 
Christ answers them. And then now Judas answers Christ. And he is sitting in the place of great honor, love, and friendship at this table. And this is a chilling passage. God in the flesh declares that Judas would be better off had he never existed. Consider the implication. How can it be that Judas cannot be forgiven? How can that be? Because he can't be forgiven. Why not? That's an extraordinary problem. Judas answers that when Christ says there's one of you that can't be forgiven and is eternally condemned, Judas asks, is it I? Does Judas know? Yeah, Judas knows. He knows why he won't be forgiven. Judas answers one of you is condemned for eternity whether it is I, or am I the one for whom it would have been better if I had not been born? And Christ said what? Yes. And you know it. I know you know, you know that I know, I know that you know that I know. So why does Judas say this, Rabbi, is it I? This piece, by the way, connects to, it fits alongside of the Satan entering into Judas' piece. See, so Satan enters into Judas right here. And it's the same thing, almost. In our giant jigsaw puzzle that's the Bible, and there's billions of pieces, and every one of them is double-sided. Have you seen the jigsaw puzzles where there's a thing on both sides of it? That's what you got here, except you got it off billions of them, and you're not going to get it, and you're only maybe going to get a little piece of the puzzle put together over here, a little section here, a little section here, but you've got to keep working on it. We're commanded to gather. You have to put the sections together, whatever ones you get. Anyway, Satan and Judas wait until after Judas receives the first piece of bread, then they unite, John 13, 27. Judas waits until all the others say, is it I? And he waits until Christ answers them, and then Judas answers Christ. Answers Christ. Rabbi, is it I? So both times you have this waiting going on. He waits for the disciples. Satan waits for the bread. Essentially, Judas identifies himself, but no one at the table figures it out. John 13, 28. So obviously, the exchange between omniscient God and Judas is for the benefit of who? Because they both know. That's right. Why does Christ even bring it up? He knows, Judas knows, Judas knows, he knows, and he knows that Judas knows that he knows. Why even bring it up? When he does bring it up, what does immediately Judas think he's going to do? What's the plan? What's Christ's plan? Listen, why bring it up? I'm just sitting here minding my own business. I'm going to run out. I'm going to turn you over to the Pharisees. It's going to be great. You're going to kill a whole bunch of Jews. This should be good. And then all of a sudden Christ says, hey, one of you is going to, one of you is wicked. One of you is condemned for all eternity. Duh. Judas knows that. Christ knows. They both know. Why bring it up? What's the point? What's going on? Obviously, the exchange between omniscient God and Judas is for the benefit of the disciples at the table. Judas is expecting something. After he has the bread of honor, love, and friendship, and Satan is expecting something after Judas has the bread of honor, love, and friendship. And they unite in preparation. Judas and Satan think something is going to happen as soon as he gets that piece of bread, and bang, here comes Satan into him. 
Judas likely declares, by the way, this, I believe, sarcasm, Rabbi, is it I, as he's eating the bread. He wants the bread. I've got to have that bread. I can almost see him sitting there going, give me that bread. I've got to have that bread. You know, Satan's coming. Okay? Is it I? As soon as I got the bread. Is it I, Rabbi? That's how it goes. It's also insulting, isn't it? Rabbi is insulting. Does he, does he know who he is? Maybe not, but he certainly knows he's not just a teacher. He knows he's got a whole lot of understanding, a whole lot of power. But, but the apostles' disciples, they have no idea who either of these two at the table are. They have no idea. The disciples did not know that Jesus Christ is the creator God outside of time, the great I am. They did not know that. And they did not know that Judas was the son of perdition, even though Christ identifies him as that and calls him the devil. They don't know that. They're clueless. The disciples call Christ Lord, but it's in ignorance, but it's also in truth. Judas calls Christ teacher with full understanding, and it's still a lie. So what were Judas and Satan expecting? Were they expecting little Peter, a puny, puny Peter rabbit to attack? How much trouble are they going to have with Peter? Not much. Was this going to be a battle over the loyalty of the disciples? How many of these disciples would follow Judas? How many would follow Christ? Did Judas, Satan, expect a declaration of deity from Christ? Were they prepared to do likewise? Because remember, what's the point of the Antichrist, the son of perdition? What's the point of him? The point of him is to set himself up as God over who? Over the nation of Israel, but the world ultimately. Did what Judas and Satan expect to happen, happen? No. Didn't. Jesus Christ sent them away again. And I think he sent them away again to collect the Zechariah 11 money because they didn't have it. That's why they went, by the way, and they couldn't stop from going. They expected something big's going to happen. Give me that piece of bread. Is it I? What did they expect Christ to say? What did Judas expect Christ to say? Can Christ lie? No. That'd be sin. He can't lie. Does he expect Christ to declare in front of his disciples, Judas is condemned for all eternity and cannot be forgiven and is pure evil to be better as if he had never been born? Does he expect that? Judas is the one. Did Judas and Satan expect that? Think he'd answer the question? Didn't answer the question until he got that piece of bread, baby. Got to have that. I got that. I'll answer the question. What was his response going to be if Christ identifies him? Satan's inside of him. How powerful are they? What's going to happen here? And Jesus didn't answer the question, did he? Not the way they wanted, not the way they thought. Instead, depart something they didn't anticipate. Christ threw them out again. Let's rise and be dismissed so that Charlotte can sing the last song.
grace like rain. Grace, grace like rain. Yes, please stand up.